Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for uh, joining us for this special live broadcast. It is Friday, May 5th, 2023. I'm Anthony Pastore. Since early March, there has been a significant amount of volatility surrounding U.S. regional banks amid some concerns that unrealized losses on bond investments could push some of them to the brink. And as we know, four banks did collapse since earlier this year, really around that March timeframe. Uh, recently, other regional banks have either been acquired by larger institutions, and there are reports out that some are looking for strategic options, which may or may not be true. Again, reports can be just what they are, reports. So we can talk, talk a little bit more about that today. But with so much uncertainty surrounding this ongoing story and many questions coming from you, our audience of investors and clients, we put together today's program to share our thoughts on the space and, of course, talk about the broader market implications. So joining me today are David Lefkowitz, Brad Ball, and Frank Saleo from the Chief Investment Office. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here today. Brad, as our uh, banking financial analyst, I wanted maybe for you have you start by giving our audience the 101. I, I highlighted it briefly in the introduction there. What's really been happening since we've seen that Silicon Valley bank failure back in March and the smaller bank right before that? It's just so many questions I know that are out there right now from, po sure. from folks. Yeah. So there's been a lot of volatility in the market and the regional bank stocks have been under significant pressure. I think there's been a, a negative feedback loop basically where stock price pressure leads to concerns about deposit flows, leads to concerns about a higher probability of a deposit bank run, which leads to further stock price pressure. So this negative feedback loop has been pressuring the group really since the demise of Silicon Valley in early March. There's really two main uh, focuses, I think, that investors have had on the regional banks uh, that have caused some concern. One is banks that have a relatively higher proportion of uninsured deposits. Silicon had about 88% of its deposits were uninsured, over 250,000, the FDIC limit. Um, and the other is which banks have significant unrealized losses in their investment portfolios. You know, we had very rapid uh, Fed rate tightening, over 500 basis point Fed rate increase in the last 12 months. And banks had put on securities um, after taking significant deposit flows during the pandemic, um, put on securities at relatively lower yields. So as market interest rates go up, the value of the uh, securities, the bonds in their portfolios have gone down. Mm -hmm. And so that's the second screen that investors have been focused on. Again, one, high uninsured deposits, two, high unrealized losses. And unfortunately, that's true that that phenomenon exists really across the banking uh, 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 industry, the regional banks more so than the big universal banks, but all of them have a fairly high amount of uninsured deposits and a fairly high amount of uh, unrealized losses. Right, which makes sense when you kind of break it down, Brad. Thanks for doing that for us. Sure. So I guess, you know, the question that probably a lot of viewers out there, my, myself included, we know that after March and the Silicon Valley Bank situation, the government did step in, they took some action. The question that keeps coming up from others is, can they do more? Can, can, what can the government do? Or if not the government, what can be done to maybe not only help the banks, but quell some of these investor concerns that are out there, which is causing all this volatility within the regional bank space? Right, right. And I do think the regulators and policymakers want to take the necessary actions to, uh, to avoid a crisis of confidence. The role of the Fed is to ensure the safety and soundness of the banking system on, on behalf of the depositors. And as you said, the initial actions taken by the FDIC and the Fed, the FDIC essentially seizing the failed banks and backstopping the uninsured deposits for those failed banks, uh, treating them as systemically important, 
um, is something that they uh, continue to have the ability to do if they were to seize further future banks. Um, but they didn't explicitly backstop all of the deposits in the banking system. And so some are saying that could be a solution. Maybe we come up with a way for the FDIC to not only backstop those banks that have been insured or, or, or seized, but actually insure all of the deposits in the banking system. Mm -hmm. and, and the FDIC is working on a, a scheme, a solution, where maybe they'll tier uh, their deposit uh, insurance program um, maybe not a, a you know a broad explicit guarantee for every deposit, but maybe you know transactional deposits that are used to pay payrolls and things like that uh, could be, come under the FDIC coverage. The other things that people are talking about is we'd like to see more M and A. Uh, the deals that have happened, as you alluded to, have happened with FDIC assistance. Right. You'd like to see bank consolidation happen without the FDIC backing, where the market uh, principles essentially drive the deal. Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, since so many banks have underwater or unrealized losses in their investment portfolios, and frankly, the fair value of their loans are underwater as well, it's hard to envision a lot of consolidation without some kind of federal assistance. Mm -hmm. and, and again, we had the most recent transaction this past weekend where the FDIC seized First Republic and sold it immediately to JP Morgan. That probably couldn't have happened if it didn't have the FDIC backstop. Right. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been in JP Morgan's best interest without that. So yeah, so that makes a lot and of sense. And it was very accretive for JP Morgan and very well received by JP Morgan shareholders. Mm -hmm. The stock reacted positively to that initial reaction. Um, and I think it did have a calming effect on the broader marketplace. But again, this negative feedback loop has taken over in the last couple of days. And we'd like to find a way to, to set that to the side. I'd like to find a way to give confidence to the system you know, without having uh, more uh, breakages. Right. And you said negative feedback loop, but that seems to be exactly what it is. Because as we're looking at the KBW bank index today, it's up. Uh, after being significantly lower yesterday, but it's been like that for weeks now. So, you know, it loops down, it loops up, and people are digesting news, and then they're focusing on other things. So, and the other question I want to ask you before we move on is, how much of, do you th Brad, do you think this might be short sellers that are maybe causing more of this volatility? You know, there's, there's will definitely- will there be a squeeze if this continues? Well, there's definitely some shorts involved in the marketplace. You know, hedge funds that run balanced, long-short portfolios, uh, have been involved in in pushing uh, some of the pressures and this negative feedback loop that right. I referred to. Um, uh, you know, that said, actually, one of the proposals that people are are considering uh, it happened during the GFC, the uh, global financial crisis, um, and that would be to put a ban on short selling for some specific institutions. Mm -hmm. Back in the GFC, I think there were hundreds of financial institutions where you could not short them, uh, that would be a temporary fix and it could be potentially disruptive to the marketplace. So I'm not sure that's the, the perfect solution. Mm -hmm. But I, I'd also note that you, you, know, you pointed out the uh, rally back that we're seeing in the shares today and it probably is some covering going on by the shorts out there. But I think that the market is taking a breather and saying, well, wait a minute, the fundamentals, we just got first quarter earnings results, not that bad. In fact, 60% of the banks that reported first quarter results actually beat uh, revised lower EPS estimates. Um, those beats were, you know, for a variety of reasons, but a lot of them because loan growth is still pretty good for the industry. Um, the 40 or so percent that missed, missed because of 
deposit pricing pressure, deposit outflows, net interest margin pressure, pressure on their revenues, and increasingly um, we're seeing some pressure on credit costs mm -hmm. as the banking industry is worried about a potential recession right. in front of us. Which, of course, we can talk about that uh, all day, about yeah. what's going on with the Fed and monetary policy and uh, mild recessions in the future potentially. Um, before I move on to David uh, to bring in sort of the broader view, this question comes up often about the regional bank model. It exists for a reason, but does it, is it still necessary today? Can the bigger banks just cover everything or maybe even the community banks? What's your take on that, Brad? Yeah, I, I've for some time felt that there needs to be consolidation in the banking in industry. There's maybe 42, 4,300 banks, chartered banks in the U.S., uh, that's excess capacity. Mm -hmm. So I, I truly do think that we need to see consolidation for scale economies, uh, for um, creating larger institutions that can afford to invest in technology that's differentiating for the banking industry. My view is that the end game is probably a barbell, where you have a few very large banks on one end of the barbell and a large number of community banks that serve a very important purpose with yeah. their relationships with community, both consumer and small businesses. I think that always has a place in the future of our banking, but do we really need all these banks between 100 billion and 700 billion in assets? The answer is probably no. So consolidation, I think, would be the end game. The problem is I just don't think there's a, um, a political appetite uh, or even maybe a regulatory appetite for uh, significant consolidation right now. Right, and you gave a great example when we were chatting earlier, Brad, about when you don't, you don't go to Nashville to eat uh, from a big box chain restaurant that you can get in any city in America. You want to eat the local delicious barbecue. And that's sort of the analogy you use to describe a community bank's purpose in in a you know in a town in America that isn't a, a larger institution like we see on every street corner in Manhattan, for example. Yeah, I mean the big banks, you know, the universal banks can offer you a very standardized, very high quality, very fast and efficient product and service. The smaller banks are going to give you something customized. That's right. They're going to lend based on relationships, um, character loans. Mm -hmm. uh, they still exist and should, I think exist into the future. That's right. They know their community. They know the people that live there. And some families have lived there for generations, and they know them, know Absolutely. them well. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. All right. So, David Lefkowitz, let me bring you in. Um, uh, we were just talking just the other day on the CIO Live. Um, actually, that was yesterday, as a matter of fact. It's hard to know what day it is. But, um, of course, this conversation came up. But now diving more deeply, let me ask you, given what we've seen with the regional banks, if you take a step back, what are the broader market implications? Because as it stands, it doesn't seem to be that there's any correlation between the S&P 500 index or the Russell and what's going on with the KBW banking index. So what are your, what's your take here? Yeah, that, thanks, Anthony. I, I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that the, the market reaction at the broader market level has been fairly muted. Uh, I mean, uh, on the since the day before uh, Silicon Valley Bank fell, the S&P 500 is actually up more than 3%. Um, and at its worst, the market uh, didn't fall more than 4%. So, you know, even though we've seen quite amount of turmoil in the regional banks specifically and, and the financials more broadly, they, the implications on the market overall have been, you know, so far have been much more modest. And I, I think that's largely appropriate. Um, you know, this is a, a very different situation, as Brad described, very different situation than you know, say what we we saw during the financial crisis when it was really a problem uh, with with the the quality of the loans that were on the bank balance sheets, and it was so pervasive 
throughout the banking system. Uh, you know, here the the loans are very high quality. It's just because interest rates have gone up. Uh, if you mark to market those loans, they're now they now has le- have less value, as Brad so as, as Brad, Brad just described. So it's not a question of it, it's just very different situation than than the financial crisis. I mean, the other thing I would I would point out is that, and Brad also mentioned this uh, when with respect to the financials, we we're winding down first quarter earnings season. And I would say the results have been actually pretty good, uh, certainly relative to expectations. And uh, you know, so we're not really seeing some of these banking jitters affect the economy in a in a broader way. Now, now that all being said, I do think it's likely that uh, that we will potentially see some impacts from this. Uh, it, it's likely that the and Brad also alluded to this as well. It's likely that some of the banks are going to be pulling back on lending. They're going to be tightening their underwriting standards. That does mean it's likely we'll see lower economic growth down the road. Uh, but but I think it's important to keep that in mind. And the Fed is doing some things to sort of offset that too. And I, I, I think we'll probably talk about the Fed, but that's part of the reason why, why the Fed is probably not raising interest rates as much as they had initially planned to before, uh, you know, since the SVC, SVB situation unfolded. Yeah, I mean, as you just, just said, David, and we talked about this on yesterday's live show, the Fed really has a big job. And uh, by the way, we talked about that before today's jobs report, which came out this morning, which was unexpectedly stellar. Um, so we could see rates at this level for longer than maybe we had even thought yesterday. So this, of course, turns around and impacts potentially the banks and, of course, lending. So, Brad, before we go deeper into the Fed conversation, maybe the question then is, what what do we need to see the banks turn around here? And interestingly, I was looking, you know, reading some reports from a couple of the regional banks that have been in question this last week, and they're coming out and saying that their core deposits have risen since March and that they haven't experienced out-of-the-ordinary deposit flow, uh, flows. So what needs to happen here? I definitely think a lot more communication from the banks uh, will be essential. So we've just gotten through the first quarter earnings reporting period. We heard on earnings conference calls that a lot of the problems that led to the bank failures were viewed to be idiosyncratic. They were specific to those banks. Um, and more of that, we, the more we, we hear of that, the better. Um, there, actually, there are actually some industry conferences coming up in the next few weeks. We expect to hear managements present at those conferences and provide soothing comments about their liquidity and capital strength and the view that there's liquidity and capital strength across the, the banking system broadly. Um, and I also think that, frankly, we need to get through some fundamental challenges, which are going to take time. You know, the rate risk issue, the fact that the Fed raised rates as aggressively as, as they did, is going to negatively impact deposit flows, deposit mix shift, and deposit pricing, which is going to negatively impact net interest margins and revenues for the mm-hmm. industry. If, if we do enter a recession, depending on how deep it is, you're likely to see credit costs rise more than is currently expected, and that is going to weigh on the earnings outlook for the banking sector. And then finally, capital. The industry has adequate capital to continue to operate in a safe and sound way to, despite a stress scenario, and we're arguably in a stress scenario right now. But do they have the same amount of excess capital that they previously had when they were buying back stock and that was helping juice their earnings per share and their profitability? The answer is probably not. And just one uh, add-on to, to the point that David made, 
I do think you're going to see, because of rising funding costs, a tightening of underwriting. We've already seen underwriting tightening for the industry because of concerns about a, a, a potential imminent recession. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to see a tightening of lending underwriting because of higher funding costs. How does that broadly impact the overall economy? What are the implications for the, the outlook for regulation? We've already heard from regulators that they're likely to impose a lot of the same capital and compliance-related costs on the mid-sized banks that they currently impose on the global systemically important banks, the so-called big eight. Um, if that uh, imposed on the industry, that's going to weigh on profitability and earnings growth. Right. So, so to your question of what do we need, I, I, unfortunately, I think what we really need is the passage of time. We need to work through this relatively difficult scenario that we're in. Um, I think the industry is going to be fine. Again, from a depositor standpoint, I think the industry is safe and sound. From a shareholder standpoint, there's a little more uncertainty in front of us. Right. It seems like a crisis of confidence for investors, but hopefully they have short memories and can move on to the next thing. And uh, by the way, speaking of that, I do remember trying to get a, my first mortgage in uh, 2010, kind of at the tail end of the financial crisis, and lending standards were very, very strict. Took me a couple of months before I actually closed. So it's not surprising to hear you say that we could see that again. And especially Especially now I'll pivot back to David when we're talking about the Fed and maybe after today's jobs report, we are going to see them pause and hold rates at this level for longer than maybe had originally been anticipated. So as Brad was saying, this could have a negative effect on the banks and, you know, what they can do for lending and why they might even want to lend as much as they they can. Do you think that that's the case? Do you think that this higher rate environment that we're in is having an impact on the banking sector? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think it's an unknown, right? I mean, you know, even Chair Powell talked about this the last two press conferences, and they they think the stresses we're seeing in the banking system will kind of do some of the the inflation fighting work for them. Uh, what, what's unknown is uh, is is how much how much of the of the work will be done by by this turmoil. Uh, so, in other words, yes, the banks probably will be. Tightening their underwriting standards, probably it's going to be probably difficult uh, or incrementally more difficult for certain types of customers to get access to to capital, and and that's really crucial when it comes to economic growth. I mean, access to capital is the lifeblood of the economy. Uh, so if you have the banks kind of stepping back a little bit, that will tend to slow things down. Um, and I think the open question just is, how much will the slowdown be? And I think the Fed is keeping uh, keeping its options open here. I, I mean, basically, they you know what Powell talked about uh, was it yesterday, a couple of days ago, two days ago, uh, Wednesday, two yeah. days ago, yeah, <laughs> uh, was you know they, he used the phrase we're going to be looking at this meeting by meeting, uh, we're going to be data dependent. Um, it, you know, looks like there's a relatively high bar to raising interest rates at the June meeting, but uh, you know, as the, the Fed is going to be pragmatic. And if they, if the, if if the banking stresses don't lead to the type of restriction in in economic growth that the Fed is kind of implicitly penciling in, then they may have to raise rates more. Conversely, if it looks like it's uh, even larger, the impact is even larger than they expected. Uh, well, it's possible they, to your point, they they could cut rates uh, sooner than expected. But I also think it's important. You know, you, you brought up the jobs number this morning, Anthony. I, like, all this stuff is going to take time to play out. I, I just don't think we're going to know. It's going to be at least a few, if not several months, before we really know what the impact is. And I think that's why the Fed, uh, you know, wants to be patient and wants to sort of take their time to assess things. Now, you know, obviously what we talked about with the Fed, 
similar implications just for you know the 10-year treasury, right? I mean, back in right before Silicon Valley Bank failed, 10-year treasury was around 4%. Now it's at three and a half. Why? That's because uh, the, the expectation of rate hikes from the Fed came out of the marketplace. And, that, and, and obviously, you know, we have these heightened concerns about, uh, about a slowdown in the economy stemming from the banking uh, situation. So yeah, it's, it's definitely had a big impact on, uh, more of an impact on fixed income as we just described, because it has implications for what the Fed is doing. Uh, but, but as we were talking about, the equity market reaction so far has been, has been fairly muted. And I think that's understandable until the market has a better sense of how much of an impact this, this could have on the economy. Thank you. Thank you, David. Brad, anything to add to that? No, I, I agree with what David said. I, I do think that we're, you know, we need the passage of time. Uh, we need for uh, nerves to calm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as we get into the second quarter, one of the things I'm going to be watching very closely here is, you know, this pendulum swing, the regulatory pendulum has been swinging against the industry. How much further does it go? Um, and actually, one sign that the industry is 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 probably stabilizing will be some uh, increased rhetoric coming from both the regulatory and the political side. Uh, so I'm a bit apprehensive about about the prospects for that. Unfortunately, <laughs> not surprising to hear that, considering the environment that we're currently in, which we will not get into in this particular conversation. Uh, Frank Saleo didn't mean to leave you hanging there for so long, but obviously there's a conversation to be had with you because regional banks issue preferred stocks and I'm you know out there preferred stock investors are asking questions should they be concerned here as they're relying on yield what have you mm -hmm. been talking about with our advisors and our clients when it comes to these preferreds Frank sure so a few things to keep in mind some positive some negative first on the positive side compared to common stockholders preferred shareholders have a senior claim on assets and a senior claim on cash flow. So, so the good news is for preferred shareholders, uh, an issuer cannot suspend a preferred dividend and continue to pay a common stock dividend. And that's really important for preferred shareholders because, as you mentioned, they tend to rely on that dividend. They're, they're yield-oriented investors. Um, the second point, banking regulations that were enacted after the financial crisis were designed to fortify uh, the banks and a mandated higher levels of capital. And this is something that David just alluded to and, and Brad as well. So that's that's good news. On the negative side, though, those same regulations also require that preferreds become more loss absorbing. So, for example, bank uh, preferreds no longer pay cumulative dividends. So this was something years ago that was a uh, characteristic of bank preferreds. They used to uh, issue something called trust preferreds, but those aren't around anymore. They used to pay cumulative dividends uh, back then. Today, bank preferreds pay non-cumulative dividends, so it's important to note. And overall, what the regulators are trying to do is to make the preferred uh, a portion of the capital stack more loss-absorbing. And in fact, some of in, in some of the recent bank failures that have occurred, uh, we've seen that even the bondholders have been impaired. So preferreds definitely have been part of that loss-absorbing uh, buffer. So so that's the framework. Okay, a little bit good, a little bit bad. Overall, um, in terms of where things stand now, I you know the concerns that Brad is bringing up. Uh, the concerns for this, 
regional bank stocks. For the stockholders, there are also going to be headwinds for preferred shareholders as well to a certain degree. Uh, preferreds will continue to get whipsawed by stock market action, and they're going to continue to be whipsawed by that negative feedback loop that Brad has uh, alluded to earlier. Um, uh, on the one hand, a lot of risk is already priced into the preferred market if you look at yields today. But volatility is going to continue uh, to flare up from time to time. Again, today's a good day. We'll see what next week brings. Uh, but these periods of volatility will continue to flare up until regulators sort of establish a firewall between market pressure and potential deposit flows. Again, that negative feedback loop can almost become uh, self-fulfilling where perception becomes reality. And until, again, we have a firewall established, um, we're going to continue to see these periods of volatility flare up uh, within, of course, the stocks. And it's going to affect the preferred stocks as well. Anthony, um, the reality is whether or not a bank experiences deposit outflows, and, and you referenced this earlier, a lot of these banks have said, hey, we, we haven't had deposit outflows, but it's the mere fact that these regional banks regional banks could be experiencing outflows and could be forced to, to borrow from the Fed at relatively higher rates. That's what's creating a lot of the angst in the market, and I think that's going to continue uh, until these conditions are resolve in some way until we sever the negative feedback loop. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, the negative feedback back loop term comes up a lot. And thanks to Brad pointing that out. And you mentioned sort of self-fulfilling prophecies. It's easy to see how that could happen. It's like I use the expression of the snake eating its own tail. It just it just never really stops until you finally put a stopgap in and, and sort of sever it. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, thank you so much, Frank. Appreciate that. And we're getting a lot of questions up about, about preferreds. So as we're wrapping up here, let me bring uh, Brad and David in. David, let me start with you, then I'll go to Brad. Um, just looking more broadly, where do you see investment opportunities right now in the equity space? Then, of course, I'll ask Brad to kind of go a little bit deep, more, more deeply into the, uh, the financial sector. So what do, you, what do you say on that, David? Where, where should investors be thinking about investing here on the equity side? Let me first uh, give a little bit of perspective on our on our outlook for the overall market, because I think that that informs kind of where we're seeing the opportunities at the moment. Um, so, look, I, I, I think we're the equity market's really been in this range over the last, you know, almost a year. Right. We've been sort of in the between the high three thousands and the low four thousands. And, you know, that we're really kind of oscillating between these. Uh, the soft landing hopes and the the hard landing fears, um, and right now we're we're towards the the upper end of of that range. I, you know we're not we're not at the very upper end of that, but I do think the risk reward for stocks uh, more broadly is not super appealing. I mean, if 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 you think about the soft landing scenario where we avoid a recession, you know we think we think the stock market maybe has ten percent upside in that scenario. Uh, but for all, for a lot of the reasons that we just talked about, the banks are going to be tightening access to capital. There's a high cost of capital. The yield curve's been inverted for uh, quite a while at this point. Inflation is still too high. The Fed acknowledges that, so they they probably can't cut rates anytime soon. There, there's a number of reasons to be concerned about the outlook, and the recession risks are somewhat higher than than average. Uh, and in that scenario, if we do fall into recession, and we could see the equity market falling by 
by 20% or so. So when I consider the the upside opportunity, you know, maybe 10, the downside maybe 20, and there's still, you know, reasonable chance that that we eventually do slip into that recession, now we think we want to be we want to be a little bit cautious here. Uh, you know, but that being said, look, if markets pull back five or ten percent, then the opportunity set becomes a little bit better. So, with that as a big picture framework, um, you know, from a sector perspective, we've been somewhat cautious. Uh, so, we we've been preferring some of the more defensive parts of the market, the the utility sector, the consumer staple sector. We do also like the industrial sector, um, where I think there's some interesting things happening in terms of some of the government spending programs, whether it be the infrastructure bill, the uh, the IRA Act, um, uh, and some of the, the defense spending, things like that, some more secular growth drivers within industrials, and still you get some cyclical upside uh, if the economy achieves a soft landing. So th those are some of our sector preferences. You know, the growth complex looks pretty expensive to us. So we have a, a very small underweight uh, preference there, but you know a lot of those companies are uh, very high quality, so we we are cognizant of that. But but just given where valuations are, we don't think you want to get too aggressive with with some of the the growthier parts of the market, especially the the ones that are are, are very expensive. So right. and just to bottom line, it Anthony, uh, you know just uh, what I was saying earlier with the overall market, um, our base case is that markets are down about five percent from here uh, by the end of the year. But again, I, I would focus on the the upside opportunity, which is about ten, and the, and the downside risk, which could be twenty. And you do have you do see opportunities outside the U.S. as well, correct, David? Emerging markets, international, when it comes to equities. Yeah, exactly. So we actually prefer non-U.S. markets at the moment, especially emerging markets. Uh, you know, emerging in emerging markets, the, the inflation problems are 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 not nearly uh, what we're seeing here. Uh, and especially in the case of China, and China's become such a huge part of emerging markets. Uh, obviously, they're going through their reopening process after after COVID. Uh, also, the the government there is is loosening policy across a whole host of standards: tech policy, social policy, um, as well as COVID policy. And, and you know, earnings in in emerging markets, I would argue, are probably 20% below normal. And at the same time, you're paying sort of an average multiple for emerging markets. Uh, whereas if you look at the United States, earnings are probably 10% above normal, and you're paying an above average multiple for those earnings. So you know, I think there's just a different risk-reward trade-off. Plus, if the Fed is done, uh, which they very well could be, you know, that, that usually tends to be favorable for emerging markets because it, it, it leads to oftentimes dollar depreciation, and we do think the dollar does depreciate from here. Um, and, and that also tends to lead to capital flowing out of, of places like the United States and into other areas of the, the global financial system, uh, and emerging markets could be you know, one of those beneficiaries. So yeah, definitely prefer emerging markets relative to the U.S. at the moment. Terrific. Thank you, David. Uh, Frank, let me bring you back in for one second before we end with Brad. On the preferred side, similar question to you. Do you see opportunities right now? Yeah, I think ultimately sort of, again, getting back to this issue, safeguards against bank runs clearly need to be updated. It used to be the concept of a run on the bank was something we only saw in old movies, right? Uh, Mary Poppins, uh, when Dick Van Dyke life. takes the, uh, it's a wonderful life, of course. So there's a run on the bank, uh, James Stewart would tell us. <laughs> and we watch those movies and we think, well, that could never happen today. Well, 
you know, with today's digital banking, social media, all of the technological advances that have happened, uh, one could argue that the, the risk of a run on the bank is alive and well and, and has possibly uh, increased uh, as evidenced by uh, recent events. Having said that, uh, the what we call the globally systemically important banks sometimes called GSIBs, or, or the largest banks uh, are probably less likely to be impacted by this negative feedback loop, but their preferreds have sold off as well, not to the same extent, but still they've sold off and many are offering current yields of 6% or more. Um, in the $1,000 par space, they're offering yields of, of 7% or more. And in almost all cases, these preferreds are trading at a discount to par, so those yields do not take into account the price appreciation potential that we may see if those prices eventually move back towards par. Uh, as such, the uh, yields on a yield-to-call basis are in double digits. And we're talking about uh, the largest, uh, again, systemically important banks. And I think that that could be, in particular, just one uh, a source of pockets of opportunity. Terrific. Thank you, Frank. And obviously, everybody has their own individual uh, time horizons and investment uh, you know, uh, risks, et cetera. So make sure you're talking with your financial advisor at UBS to make sure you're making the right decisions for your portfolio. Brad, I'll, start, I'll end where we started with you. On the regional side or just the banking sector in general, is this an opportune, opportune time to be investing here? Obviously, coming off a of first quarter earnings season, things looked pretty good. What are you, what are you recommending to investors right now? Yeah, first, uh, I'll take a step back. And um, we have a, a least preferred view on U.S. financials, which include banks, insurance, and diversified financials. We went to that underweight view at the end of last year because we saw three main risks that I talked about earlier. The rate risk issue, the credit risk issue, the capital risk issue, and capital and regulatory risk issue. Um, we've had a, arguably a crisis. We've had bank failures. Uh, we've had this crisis of confidence, all the things that we've been talking about today's call. Um, we still have those risk factors in front of us. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, we still face uh, uh, pricing pressure from rising rates on deposit costs, and that's going to negatively impact net interest margins and net interest income. We still have potential credit costs normalizing and maybe going beyond normal if we see a deeper and longer recession than is currently anticipated in the market. And we have capital moving from what had been a tailwind to being more of a headwind in what looks like it's going to be a tougher, um, more draconian, let's say, regulatory environment. So it's hard to get positive. Uh, and to your question, we do still have a neutral view on banks broadly. Mm -hmm. um, within the bank, uh, group, so regionals versus universal banks, I have a preference similar to what Frank said for the universal banks because I believe they have more liquidity, they have more capital, they are bigger, they have more operating efficiencies, they have deeper pockets to invest in technologies. Um, they're potentially the beneficiaries of consolidations like we just saw over this past weekend. Um, so I believe that the universal banks could survive this, this difficult period, actually become stronger and improve uh, their outlook on the other side. And, and so I would take a, uh, I mentioned a barbell approach to the future of the banking industry. I would take somewhat of a barbell approach with respect to uh, stock investing in the banks. Terrific. Brad, thank you very much. Appreciate that. And also thank you to Frank and to David uh, for joining me 
on this Friday. And thank you all for joining us as well. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But uh, thanks for spending a little time with us on this Friday afternoon. Of course, we will continue to keep you updated on this situation. And of course, any other market moving news that is going on out there, which there are a lot. We've also got a debt ceiling looming. So I'm sure we're going to be talking about that quite a bit over the next couple of days and weeks. But in the meantime, take a look at the most recent publications that come out from the chief investment office, including all the House View publications, alerts, there are blogs, there are videos like this, there are podcasts, lots of content. And as always, please, we encourage you to continue this conversation with your financial advisor. You may even have more questions that pertain specifically to you and your situation, so make sure to reach out to them. Again, take a look at our website, ubs.com forward slash views. That's our insights page. Lots more happening there as well. From New York City, I'm Anthony Pastore. Thanks again for joining us. Have a great weekend, everybody, and we'll see you soon. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.